Let's pray as we turn to the scripture passage for the day. Heavenly Father, you are holy. You have done great things throughout history and in our lives and community. And above all else, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to walk among us, to live a perfect life, and to die and rise again that we might be saved from sin. Teach us, O Lord, to trust you that much more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. And thank you to the team for their leadership in musical worship and the chance to just press into some of those themes that we're working in this Christmas season. This sermon is part of a series that we've been doing on different elements of Christmas and the way that different figures in the Bible reacted to the news that Jesus was coming, which invites us to consider how we ought to react in our own lives today. So Brent started off the series by looking at Zechariah and noting that his doubts force us to face our own doubts. And Daryl spoke last week about Elizabeth's humility and the fact that that's a call for us to think less of ourselves and more of others. And this week, we're looking at joy. Hooray! Now, my guess is that joy is a word that comes to mind more readily than doubt or humility when you think about the Christmas season. We are surrounded by songs and postcards that remind us that Christmas is meant to be a time of joy. In fact, some of those songs might have even popped into your head when the word came up on the screen. And yet, we need to recognize that for many people, the joy of Christmas isn't as pure as we would like it to be. It's muddled in with a bunch of other emotions. And this was certainly my experience growing up. Growing up, Christmas brought with it an emotional tension. On one hand, it was a time of joy and celebration in my family and in my church. I grew up in a church a lot like Auburn Bible Chapel, which is not a highly traditional community. And with that in mind, Christmas was one of the times of year when we did have a little bit more tradition, and there were certain songs and certain events that came up year after year, and I always came to look forward to those things, singing those songs or having the Christmas pageants or the candlelight service on Christmas Eve. And so there was a a, a sense of joy when we were within our church community. And alongside that, our family really loves Christmas time. And my mother in particular is somebody who absolutely loves to give gifts and to receive gifts. For her, gifts is just such a wonderful thing. And, And so she gets so excited this time of year. And we all picked up on that excitement because she felt like a little kid again as she prepared for the Christmas season. But if you know my personal story, you know that I was raised by a single mom of five kids, that my dad walked away from the family when I was eight years old. And because of that, despite the fact that my mother absolutely loved to celebrate this time of year, it was always difficult to do so in a pure way. There was always this looming sense that every gift that she purchased would end up on her credit card bill only to be paid down when the tax return came in in April. There was a sense that you know, there, there was always going to be this shroud of the fact that we're just barely making ends meet for a little while after the Christmas season. And so that added to the stress. Alongside that, it's actually right after Christmas time that my dad left the family. And so Christmas kind of is a bittersweet time for my mom and for us because of the fact that there's this memory of him giving us lavish gifts and then walking out a few weeks later. 
And so this is a time where that reminder comes up that this thing happened within the life of our family. And I personally actually notice that this time of year, I go through a bit of an emotional dip. And for a long time, that was extreme enough that teachers and mentors would actually notice it and would say to my mom, Ben really struggles in that second term. January was this low point in my academic performance and in my emotional life. And to this day, even though it's not as extreme as it once is, I do notice that little bit of a dip that I only come out of around February time, <laughs> right? And, and so there was this stress that was looming over the family, and this stress had this funny thing attached to it where, where to this day we joke about the fact that on Christmas Day itself, there's inevitably going to be a fight. I don't know if you can relate to that, but at some point throughout the Christmas Day, somebody would get on somebody else's nerves, and boom, there'd be an explosion. And inevitably, my mom would get in the middle of it and would be saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. We're supposed to be happy, and she'd kind of let loose a little bit too. And so we joke that no matter who's around mom's house on Christmas Day, they should expect there's going to be a little bit of a blow-up. But of course, there's always the forgiveness and reconciliation afterwards, which is something I respect about my mom, is she would own the fact that that was not the way that it ought to be. So, so this, to me, captures the reality of the Christmas season. We like to think of it as an idyllic time, a time when everything is just joyful, but I think everybody knows that this kind of tension is more common than the ideal. This is a time of lavish giving and haunting bills. This is a time of family get-togethers and family fights. This is a time where we really clearly see who the haves and the have-nots are. And what I find hopeful when I look at the Christmas narrative in Scripture is that this is not new. This is not only a 21st century phenomenon, even though certain elements of it certainly are, the amount that we spend on gifts or the colorful lights that we put up everywhere. This is not something that the original Christmas narrative includes. But if you look at the original Christmas narrative, I think that you see very clearly that this tension between the joy and the stress the haves and the have-nots, is something that was there right at that time. And I think actually when you look at Luke's telling, you see it more clearly than others because Luke is really focused on highlighting some of those people that don't fall into the have category. And so when we look at today's passage, which the worship team already read for me, which I'm appreciating because it's a pretty long passage, what we see is God choosing Mary to be the Messiah's mother, as well as her reaction to that choice. And what we see is that her reaction is joy. That is the thing that she experiences when she is chosen and that she celebrates in that song that we just got to sing together. But I think it's deeper than that. When you really look at the story that Luke tells, this joy is something that emerges by surprise because of the circumstances that Mary finds herself in. And so I think what we need to actually consider as we understand the meaning of this passage and what Christmas joy is all about is what is it that brings Mary joy? And I'll add an extra little complication into that. I think that if we're really going to understand Luke's message, we can't just look at Mary as an isolated figure. We actually have to do what Luke intended and compare and contrast her story to Elizabeth's story. I really think when you read through the narrative, you see this back and forth, this comparison taking place between Mary and Elizabeth all throughout the first chapter of Luke. Uh, and so I'm going to build a little bit on what Daryl spoke on last week and highlight Elizabeth's response 
alongside Mary's response so that we can really see what this theme of Christmas joy, of rejoicing, is all about. So we're going to ask ourselves a few questions that will guide us through this passage and get to what it is that I think we can take away from this passage. First of all, I want to ask the question, what makes Mary a less likely choice than Elizabeth to be the Messiah's mother? I think this is really highlighted in the passage, that Mary is an unlikely choice and Elizabeth is a more likely choice to be the Messiah's mother. And we need to understand why that Luke thinks that that is the case. Then second, I'm going to ask, how did these two women then respond to the fact that Mary was chosen? They both have a distinct response to the fact that she was chosen and not Elizabeth. And then finally, we can talk about this idea of what can we learn from their example today? How do these themes that play out in this passage shape the way that we think about Christmas season and joy in 2019? So first of all, what makes Mary a less likely choice than Elizabeth to be the Messiah's mother? And to understand the answer to this question, I think we need to understand just a little bit about the geography of Israel, which I actually appreciate that uh, Katie was already highlighting a little bit in something she said earlier. Now, I know you probably can't read anything on this map. That's okay. Um, There's a lot of names of places on this map. Uh, And what I want to call your attention to is just two kind of broad regional uh, features of this map. In the south, there's a region called Judea. And there in Judea, you actually see a fairly dense number of city names that you probably recognize, like Jerusalem and Bethlehem uh, and Emmaus, right? And this is because Judea is the place that most Jews regard as the center of their culture and their faith. And they certainly did in Jesus' day, especially the holy city of Jerusalem, where Solomon's temple was built, and Jews believe you need to come in order to worship God. And so in Jesus' day, this was really the center of both the Jewish faith and the economy of the nation of Israel. It was also the last place that got invaded by enemies, and a lot of Jews managed to stick around in that region or to return to that region after the exile. And so they managed to preserve a little bit more of what they regarded as true Judaism in that region. But as you go further north, you see a couple other large regional names. One is Samaria, and I've talked about that in past sermons, which is a place where there was kind of people who remained in the area, but they kind of intermarried with with other people. And so they were regarded as half-Jews and kind of not really faithful people. And then you get further to the region of Galilee, which is even further away from Jerusalem and the epicenter of Jewish culture. Uh, And there is the town of Nazareth, right? And in that region, it seems like there's a number of Jews who live there, but there tend to be a lot more poor people in that region. It tends to be much more of a rural area. And they tend to be a little bit more detached from the mainstream Jewish religion and life. And they even had their own little movements, religious-wise, that that kind of sprung up in that area, one of which is the Pharisees, which is something that you probably have heard mention of in a lot of different Bible stories. Uh, And so they were kind of looked at as being a little bit unusual, even though they were true Jews in a way that Samaritans weren't. uh, there, There was still this sense that there's not a lot good that comes out from that Galilee region, or as Katie highlighted, one one passage, there's actually somebody who looks at Jesus and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Uh, So this is not the place that you wanted to come from or to live if you were a faithful Jew. And Luke clearly has this regional divide in mind as he goes about telling the story of Jesus' coming. We see him highlight two different families in this story and in the broader chapter. 
You see, Mary and Joseph, their family, as far as we can tell, was originally from Judea because they have to go back there for a census and because of the fact that we, we mentioned that Elizabeth is from their family and, and that she's a relative of theirs. Uh, and so they, they are from Judea, but for some reason they had to leave. It's possible that their family was removed during the wars at some point in time, maybe generations before them, or maybe they had to leave because they couldn't continue to afford living in that region. But whatever it is, we see that they are located in this northern part of Israel and that their life really reflects the state that that region is in. We see that they themselves are actually a relatively poor family. We're told that Joseph is a construction worker of some kind, probably a carpenter, and that he probably lived a relatively subsistence lifestyle. And we see that highlighted in a scene in Luke 2 where where they actually give a sacrifice at the temples of two pigeons, which is a sacrifice that only poor people were allowed to give. So we recognize that they, like many people in their region, are on the lower side of economic well-being. And they themselves are young, and they are not yet married, which means they have very little in the way of social standing in a culture that respects families and married couples and elders above all else. And so, and so this couple is really not a very fitting choice for the Messiah to come through them. But if we contrast that with this other couple that we've already heard reference to in previous sermons, Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see that almost count for count, they have the opposite things going for them. They are Judeans who still live in the region of Judah. They are elders and highly respected in their community. They're actually religious leaders, and they know that they have religious pedigree going back generations upon generations through the tribe of Levi. And I think symbolically, the story that we see laid out in the first half of the chapter really mirrors another couple that all Jews know very well, which is the story of Abraham and Sarah. They're an older, faithful couple who have been waiting on God for a long time, and then by miraculous intervention, they're finally able to conceive when they weren't able to before. And so, and so they, they are the kind of couple that just looks like they would be part of God's promises to the point that they even mirror the one through whom the promised people came in the first place. I think it's very possible, given all of these things that I've just said, that actually Elizabeth and Zechariah and the people around them may have even wondered if the child in Elizabeth's womb was the Messiah. Now, this is a little bit of speculation, but I think if you actually look at what is said about John by the angel Gabriel, it's not as clear-cut for them as it is for us with our hindsight as 2020 lens. There's a reference to the fact that he's going to be great, that he's going to be a blessing to Israel, and that, in fact, he is going to fulfill the spirit of Elijah and prepare the way for the Lord. Now, we in hindsight know that's a reference to him preparing for Jesus, for the Messiah, for Yahweh incarnate. But I think that from their perspective, it's very possible that that Malachi reference is a reference to the one who's going to establish Yahweh's kingdom throughout the world, preparing for the day of the resurrection, preparing for the day of the Lord, right? So I think it's very possible that they were wondering, is this the promised child? And it would have been a much more reasonable conclusion than people looking at Mary and Joseph and saying, they're the people that are going to bring the Messiah into the world right now. 
Again, count for count, everything that Elizabeth and Zechariah have going for them, Mary and Joseph have going against them. So I think it's clear when you look at the way Luke sets up this story that Mary is a much less likely choice to bring the Messiah into the world than Elizabeth, who already has this promised child. So then we look at their responses. How did they respond to the fact that Mary was chosen? And again, I think the contrasting method really helps illuminate some of the themes Luke wants us to get at in this passage. We see that Mary, for her part, is surprised and, as I said, joyful. But it's kind of a joy that comes through some speculation, through some wondering. She's not easily won over to this thing. The way that the conversation unfolds between Mary and Gabriel shows how surprised she really is. Gabriel shows up and his first words are, favored one, the Lord is with you. And the exact words that she gives back are, what kind of greeting is this? You know what I'm hearing there? Favored one, what are you on about? No one in the world has ever looked at Mary and said, you're God's favored one. (laughs) She's poor. She's single. She's young. This is not somebody who is favored by God. And she goes, what's going on? (laughs) Why are you greeting me this way? And so then the angel says, well, I'm greeting you this way because you're going to have a child. And her response is, I don't think that's biologically possible. (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm a virgin. And it's only when the angel says, this is going to be a miracle. Oh, and by the way, God's already performed another miracle in Elizabeth's life. The Holy Spirit's going to make this happen, that she kind of gets her head around this enough that she's able to say, May it be done to me as you have told. May the Lord's will be done in this circumstance. Mary's confusion is overcome by faith. And I think at that moment, we see she's willing to trust and even to rejoice a little bit. Okay, if you want to bless me this way, I can receive it. I'll accept this title of favored one. But it has to get through the confusion at first because this circumstance that she's in does not lend itself to being the favored one of God. Mary's reaction indicates the kind of reaction that somebody in her circumstances has when God comes and blesses her. She's joyful, but it's joy that comes through confusion and needs faith to accept. And what about Elizabeth? I think Daryl did a great job of summing up last week in his sermon the humility of Elizabeth. And I think when you place it in this position that I've already placed it in, this comparing and contrasting to Mary, and this wondering that maybe even this is the Messiah in Elizabeth's womb, I think Elizabeth's humility is even more amazing. You see, the moment Mary walks into the room, the baby inside of Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And Elizabeth, in that moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit, understands that's because of the fact that the baby in her womb is even greater than my baby. That the baby in her womb is the promised Messiah, and my baby is secondary to that. 
And I think in that moment, it would have been very natural for Elizabeth to react with a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of envy, at least a little bit of disappointment. Really? She's the one? I've been waiting all these years and finally the child's coming through me and it looks like you're paving the way. You've even given my husband this wonderful prophecy about this child and she's the one? I think that would have been a very natural response on Elizabeth's part. But she doesn't go there. Instead, she willingly and humbly accepts the goodness of this act. That God is taking somebody who does not deserve his favor and would never be given favor by the world and is lifting her up and rewarding her for her trust. And, and, and in response, she celebrates and she even gives this wonderful blessing where she says, God has blessed you because you trusted him to fulfill his promises to you. I think this is, this is just a wonderful portrait of the humility of somebody who thought they were the ones who were going to be blessed. And then a willingness to say, I see God's doing something even better than what I expected. And to be part of that story by offering her blessing. And as a side note, I'm going to speculate a little bit again. You've probably heard allusion to the fact that Mary, in her position, likely would have been pretty ostracized by her community because of what was going on. We know this is miraculous, and we receive it as, as a faith thing. This is God doing something supernatural. But it's pretty certain that the people around Mary would not have jumped to the conclusion, God did this. There's a lot more reasonable of an explanation, and that's that she had sex. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, and that would have violated all of their ethical codes and jeopardized her marriage. Now, we see that God intervenes in Matthew to help Joseph come around to marrying her still. So we know God was supernaturally intervening to defend Mary and protect Mary from suffering those consequences. But I also wonder if one of the things God used in Mary's life to avoid the worst outcomes of this situation is Elizabeth's respect. I wonder if Elizabeth actually put herself a little bit on the line and when she spoke with people, or maybe she even sent a letter back with Mary saying, I believe this is from God, and put her own reputation on the line on Mary's behalf. Now, I recognize this is totally speculation, but what I do know is that there's no sign in Scripture that Mary faces the worst kind of consequences that she could have, which might have even included some sort of corporal punishment or death for what she had done. And I wonder what role Elizabeth might have played in that as the one who blessed Mary and said, I see this is what God has done in your life. One way or the other, regardless of whether I'm right about this speculation, what I think is clear is that Elizabeth trusts God enough to accept his choice of Mary over her. He trusts, she trusts God enough to accept his choice of Mary over her. And, and I think this is reflective of what faith looks like for somebody in Elizabeth's position. I think what we really see going on here is Mary being lifted out of her humble circumstances and Elizabeth being humbled, and both of them are willing to receive it by faith. And just in case we're tempted to just think, oh, this is a nice story. 
There's this one person and this other person, and God happened to raise one up and humble the other. Luke leaves us no doubt about the fact that this is actually connected to how God works in the world in general by including this song that Mary sings at the end of this passage. Traditionally, it's called the Magnificat, and it's been put to song a number of different ways by a number of different people, and I really appreciated the one that we just sang, right? Uh, Through the church, they've recognized this song has a special place in highlighting the way that God works in the world as represented in Mary's story. And I don't have time to dig super deep into the specific wording of this passage. But broadly, I think what you see that takes place in this song is that Mary begins by reflecting on her own story and says, the Lord has done great things for me. And then she actually projects that outwards and says, this is God's nature. That he actually is the God who lifts up those who are humble and humbles those who are great. And then she connects her story back to the story of her people, the people of Israel, who were given all of these promises thousands of years before when they were a slave people and a wandering people, that God would give them favor in a way that the world never would. And so she's recognizing that really God's character as the one who lifts up the lowly is being fulfilled in her life, but also through her is being fulfilled in the nation of Israel, even as she speaks, right? So so what Mary does is she connects her own story, her own experience of God lifting her up and humbling Elizabeth and says, that's God's character. This is how he works. And I think this really is the heart of what we need to understand today if we're going to learn from their example. When we look at Mary and Elizabeth's response, we see joy We see rejoicing, we see singing, we see this jumping in the womb of John and his mother getting alongside that, right? We see a great deal of joy in this passage, but I think we need to understand what the nature of that joy is. It's not just endless, aimless joy that is sought for its own sake. It's not like our culture's understanding of joy where we kind of chase whatever good feeling we can get. That's not what's going on in this passage. Instead, I think what we see in Mary and Elizabeth's story is that we, as God's people, are called to rejoice in the fact that God manifests himself by reversing people's fortunes. This is what this story shows us. We are called to rejoice in God reversing people's fortunes. That's why Mary's so happy. Her fortunes have been reversed. And that's what Elizabeth is able to receive in that moment and rejoice alongside, is that God is reversing their fortunes. And I think if we understand this, we realize there's really two distinct paths to this kind of Christmas joy. We see that there are those like Mary, who throughout Scripture are looked upon with God with favor. He sees their lowly estate. He sees that the world has overlooked them. He sees that they have been exploited or taken advantage of. And we recognize that what God wants for those people is to trust him enough that they will wait on him to reverse their fortunes. And to rejoice when they even catch little glimpses that that is what God is doing. That's what Christmas joy is all about when you are struggling. It's to slow down, to pay attention, to look for signs that despite your struggles, God is favoring you. And that he wants to lift you out 
of those circumstances. And that takes great faith. When life is pointing you in the direction that you are doomed, it takes great faith to say, I'm going to rejoice in the little signs that I am not. And that's the lesson that God wants us to take away, I think, from Mary's story and reaction. But then there are those of us who are more inclined to be in a position of favor in the world's eyes and just naturally. That we have more wealth or we have more power or we have more influence. We have more honor in the community. And I think the message that we get from this passage is that we actually need to rejoice in being humbled. That, that we need to hold our position with an open hand and look for signs that God wants to do something in somebody else's life and get alongside that. To be willing to partner with him in lifting people out of their lowly circumstances. And there's a cost to that. Elizabeth doesn't get to be the mother of the Messiah. Yes, her son is still great, but he's kind of the sideline to the main story. To the point that she's only even mentioned in one book of the Bible. Whereas Mary is mentioned in all of them. Elizabeth, who, who was regarded as honored, had to be humbled. But she held that with an open hand. That's okay. I'm willing to be humbled, to see God at work in somebody else's story, and to rejoice for them, and even to offer what support I can so that that can take place. And this is what it looks like to rejoice in the God who reverses fortunes for those who are a little bit more fortunate. And I think this is very important for us to hear because so many of us are in that position of honor, of blessing, of strength, and I think there's two reactions we can have. One is that we can think, well, I'm still supposed to find something I need to trust God with. I need to find some ounce of suffering so I can feel like he's going to help me out with that. And I'm not denying that we all have those moments where we're struggling, right? But I think so often if we just think the path to being part of God's kingdom is the same for everybody, we kind of have to force it, right? Like I'm looking for the suffering that God can lift me out of. Or vice versa, you can give in to the narrative that our culture often weaves that says, if you are blessed, you're a bad person, right? And I've even heard that taught theologically sometimes, that like God doesn't like rich people. They're terrible, right? I don't think that's the message of this passage. I don't think that's what Luke wants us to conclude. Instead, I think what he wants us to conclude is that we have been blessed and we need to hold that blessing with an open hand so that he can work in the lives of those who are having their, reverse, their fortunes reversed. Does that make sense? So we get to partner with God in that work and to get excited on other people's behalf. And that's how we rejoice in the way that Elizabeth rejoices. And I think it's really important to acknowledge, ultimately, that probably none of us is firmly in one category or the other. Sometimes we think about these categories as some sort of fixed thing that everybody is either a have or a have not. But the truth is, life doesn't work that way. That you can find yourself in a position of great strength and glory and honor in your community, and then you lose a job or you get sick or somebody dies in your family, and boom, you're in the midst of the suffering again. And vice versa, sometimes you're somebody who's struggling, and then things just click, and you're lifted out of that circumstance. And so ultimately, the message is not, which one of these people are you, but rather, where are you at today? Are you somebody who's suffering and needs to wait on God to lift you out of those circumstances? If so, look for it and rejoice in God's favor. 
Are you somebody who's pretty well off, who, who, who has a lot of blessing in your life right now? Then look for God to be working in the lives of people around you and hold your blessing with an open hand so they too can be lifted out of their circumstances. That's really the message, is just to say, where am I at? And for me, that's helpful because I recognize that that is my story, is one of being reversed. I grew up in a single-parent ha- fa- single family with five kids. I grew up remembering all sorts of stress around Christmas time. I remember all the fights that came from that. You know what? That's not my story today. I wouldn't say I'm super wealthy, but we're not really too worried about paying for the Christmas presents. We live in a nice, comfortable home we know we can afford. I'm, I'm blessed to be able to say that I have a position of influence within my faith community and that people regard what I say seriously. Seriously. 